can turn now back to the book of Genesis as we continue the study of Abraham. We're approaching, as we come to the chapter 23 of Genesis, we find a chapter that records the death of Sarah. Soon we're going to come across the death of Abraham. And whenever you consider uh, death and the passing of an individual, we consi you consider the legacy they left. And, we, and we've seen lessons in the lives of Sarah and Abraham that have uh, left lives of, of growing faith. And though they had times of stumbling and falling, like we all do, there was times of growth, and God uses them in the Word of God as examples of faith. You know, and it cha should challenge us. As I shared in our men's Bible study, in our study of Second Timothy, in Paul's last letter, he, he uh, wrote the words of, in regards to um, having run a, run a good race, having kept the faith, and so on. And it should encourage us to want to finish well, wherever we've been in life. You know, we all have mistakes and failures and shortcomings, wasted times in our past, but, but the Bible tells us to forget what's behind and press forth to what is before. And that's really the message of faith in these chapters is the promise that God holds before his people of a glorious future. And God says, you know, the past can be forgiven and can be forgotten. We need to finish well. And so we come to this chapter that records uh, the events surrounding uh, Sarah's death. So let's go ahead and read chapter 23 if you'll follow along, beginning of verse 1, where it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me a property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zahar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of, this, of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who in the, went in the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, 
before Mamre, that is Hebron, and the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Now here in this chapter, which mentions the death of Sarah and Abraham's mourning for the loss of his wife, we find in this account, much of this chapter has is really a bartering session having to do with Abraham acquiring a burial place. You know, you wonder, why is this so significant, significant to Scripture that God records this, you know, this Far East bargaining session over the purchase of this cave? Why is it significant? And it's probably significant because Abraham, in seeking to buy this cave, was really claiming Canaan as his home country. Back in the end of chapter 2, when Abraham had been updated in regards to his family. In verses 20 through 24 of chapter 2 is kind of an update in regards to his family back in the homeland but from which he had come. And while this is not only significant to chapter 24 where it has to do with Abraham finding a, a bride for Isaac and sending his servant to his people for a bride, what's interesting here is that Abraham could have been reminded that of his homeland and when Sarah passed, Maybe it was time to return home. Why go on in life without her? Why not bury her among her people, which was common in those days, which was the practice of that day? Abraham could have returned and buried Sarah to the homeland, especially after this reminder of the update that his family back home was doing well. But this decision declared that, no, this Canaan was his home. It's where he belonged because God had called him there. God had called him to serve him there. God had great plans for him in that place in, in the promised land of Canaan. And so by staying there, Abraham aligned himself with the will of God and the work of God. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would please. Hebrews chapter 11. We read in chapter 10, but we want to jump to chapter 11, which has something to say about this very thing. In the section, the previous verses, speaking of Abraham and Sarah and their face, verse 13 of chapter 11 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, Abraham adopted the vision of God, the vision that God had given him of a promised land and a glorious future and a great nation. And though he saw very little, he didn't receive the promise in the sense of the fulfillment of the promise. In fact, that promise is yet to be fully fulfilled in, in human history when the Lord Jesus comes back at last to set up his millennial kingdom, headquartered in Jerusalem. That is yet future. But these died in faith. And the faith was they were willing to align themselves with the hardships of living out the promises of God. This was the seed of the nation which was to be developed and born, and, and born, for, and born from the womb of Sarah as she become the mother of many. Abraham could have returned. That's what it says here. They could have gone back. 
if they had been mindful, and maybe that's the key word, if they longed for the old way of life. It was easier, you know, back home, and things were normal, and we knew, understood the culture, and we knew, we knew how to operate, and, it, and they could have gone back. It reminds you of Israel in the wilderness. Remember when God delivered them from Egypt, when things became uncomfortable for them. They began to complain and long for the leeks and garlics of Egypt. They were mindful of returning. And God scolded them for that. But just like Abraham and Israel in the wilderness, God puts before us today, because this becomes a real good example of our wanderings as God's people today, does it not? In fact, if you look back at verse 10, it says, For he, Abraham, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And God holds before us the sure hope of future glory. You know, because Jesus died so completely on the cross so completely for our sins, that sins were paid for past, present, and future, that we are assured of through faith in Christ of eternal future. And God holds that before us. He reminds us that, you know, the going might be rough today because in this world you will have tribulations. That's God's promise. But we have a glorious future awaiting for us, an eternity in, in the presence of God in a, in, a, in a land without sin and without suffering, without tears and without sorrow. And eternity is a whole lot longer there than our 80, 90 years of suffering here. And that's why these people of faith these, that, that these verses refer to are, are held up before us because they align themselves with the purposes of God in helping God get there if you want to put it that way. God had a program, and Abraham and Sarah was, was the people through whom God started this program to, to establish a, any, an eternal people in Israel. And they didn't receive the promise, but they're willing to suffer, labor, and align themselves with the work of God, just as we are today. And God holds that glorious future. We look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ to remind us that we belong to him, not to this God-rejecting world, and therefore we ought to align ourselves with the purposes of God. We're here to help God carry on his work. What's he doing today? Well, Jesus said, I will build my church, and that's what he's doing today. Not the physical building, but the people. He's building them in quantity and in quality, and we here need to recognize that we're pilgrims and strangers on this earth. We don't belong to this earthly home. We have a heavenly identity, a heavenly home, and we need to align ourselves with the purpose of reaching people with the gospel. That's what we are to do individually. That's our calling as a church corporately, to be equipped to reach folks with the good news. And part of that is living like we don't belong here. That's the point of this passage. And you see the behavior of Abraham in various facets of a life. He lived like he didn't belong in Canaan. He didn't adopt to their culture. He didn't, he didn't embrace their values. He lived his life by faith for the glory of God. And Philippians 3.20 reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Which means we have a heavenly address. That's our true home. That will be our eternal home. Our citizenship is in here. We are a spiritual people. And really living like we do not belong here is to really live our identity, our reality, that we are Christ ones. He lives within us today. We're going to live with him for, for all eternity. Turn back with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
And what 2 Corinthians 6 does for us is brings out a logic in regards to living our identity, living like we are the people of God. And after listing some of the differences between a Christian and a non-Christian, he says to them in verse 17, Therefore, since verse 16, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's our identity. Therefore, if that's the case, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, chapter 7, verse 1, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's our growth in grace. That should be the norm for Christians. We are to live like we do not belong here. We embrace heavenly values. We have a heavenly home, and we're to come out from among them, and that's, that's where you'll see it's the life of Abraham. He retained his distinction as God's person, as God's man. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now he says that to a church who is carnal, a church who had assimilated with the culture, had lived, has blended in with the, with, the, with the neighborhood. And Christians aren't to do that. Well, we're to be good neighbors, we're to be loving and giving and kind and so on. We're the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us and that should call us to live separate, to live distinctly to live out our heavenly citizenship. And Abraham's decision to bury his wife and Sarah declared that very fact, that I belong to God. This is my home. And though at, before this chapter, he didn't own a piece of dirt. He didn't have a claim to a, to a square foot of land. He moved forward anyway. And I've always said, you know, in the study of Abraham, when Abraham arrived at the promised land and saw that it was inhabited, it's like, now what? Now what? Someone else owns this land, and God says, no, you do. But in God's plan, through the process of time, he will bring it to their possession. And so Abraham wasn't going back to the former. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 then, we'll find that that created a problem. He wasn't going back home. He was where God had him to be. He was in carry out the mission God had for him to, to live. And so he had a problem. He didn't have a place to bury Sarah. And what we find then through much of chapter 23 is this maybe traditional Eastern bargaining session as Abraham sought to find a place he could bury his wife, a place he could call his own. Now, in this bargaining session, the word give didn't mean that Abraham was asking something for free. That's kind of what you first think when you, when you see it. Abraham just says, you know, give me a handout. That's, that's just the way their bargaining sessions work. He must have said, make me an offer. What do you have to give? He says in, in verse 4. And verse 5 is in on, onward, they seem to offer him a place among themselves. He says, you know, you can just bury your dead with the, around, with the rest of us. And this is where Abraham kept his distinction. This is where he tells them he is, he is not going to. He, after they make this offer, and maybe it was a generous, generous offer when they said, you know, bury your dead among us. Well, Abraham was not going to assimilate to the culture, embrace their practices. Instead, he said, no, I'm gonna, I want to buy a place of my own. And he offers to buy the cave 
of Machpelah from Ephron in verses 7 through 9. He identifies the, the place he has in mind, this cave up there at the end of the field. He says, that's just a perfect place. It's all I need, a burial place for Sarah. And while many of us are looking out to buy thousands of acres of land, Abraham was content with just enough for what he needed in the moment, wasn't he? Well, Ephron counters in verses 10 through 11 as we read, and it was a crafty move because he says, yeah, I'll be glad to sell you the cave along with the field. Abraham wasn't offering to buy the field. He didn't really need the field or want the field. But Ephron maybe saw dollar signs, a chance to sell a field maybe he wasn't, need, wasn't using, didn't need, and he puts Abraham in a corner. He says, I'll sell you the cave if you buy the field too. So what's Abraham going to do? It's part of this negotiation, bartering session, and he's got backed into this corner. In verses 12 through 13, Abraham simply says, okay. He agrees. You might ask yourselves, what? What kind of negotiator are you, Abraham? No more bartering? No more bantering? No more haggling over the price or the, the details? In fact, he seems in verses 12 to 13 to agree to buy it before he even hears the price. Now, how irresponsible is that? You know, maybe he needs some advice from some of us that are good at negotiating and walk away in order to pressure the seller, to make him think you're not interested. Or maybe he should play the mourning card. His wife just died, and he really needs a place to bury her. You know, all those negotiation tactics... We don't know for sure why Abraham agreed without further bartering. In fact, verse 14 and 16 through 16, when Ephron names the price of 400 shekels of silver, he said, I'll be glad to sell it to you for 400 shekels of silver. Most commentators state that this was a way too high a price, way more than he should have paid. And yet, Abraham agreed. Didn't flinch, apparently. Why wasn't he more frugal? Was it tradition, simply not to offend the seller? Was it because he was in mourning? Whichever the case was, one thing we do know is it helped preserve his testimony among the ungodly of the land. He didn't burn bridges. He didn't have opportunity. He didn't offend anyone. He didn't alienate the neighbors. And that testimony possibly allowed for him an opportunity to be a light to the ungodly and unsaved in his neighborhood. In this case, Abraham didn't mind being generous. I remember reading of one Christian speaker and author who mentions this concept of generosity, the fact that sometimes being frugal can be the enemy of the generosity of Christ, the enemy of the cause of Christ. And one Christian author says he always gives way more than a 20% tip just because he feels for the, the workers that are working hard. And he doesn't want to be seen as a, you know, as a tight wallet preacher who, you know, is cheap with his money. Because we have a God, a God of bounty. And sometimes there's a greater purpose than being frugal. And the way God describes himself in the scripture is as a giving and bountiful God. The way he describes a Christian life is a bountiful life. The way he describes Christian giving is to give out a bounty and abundance. That's the kind of God we have. We're not talking about sloppiness and wastefulness. 
We're talking about the nature of God, which loves to give and abound and give us bountifully. He loves to give good gifts to his children. I always, in, always enjoy when we, you go to a church gathering, a picnic or something, and, and you look at the spread and think, wow, there's food here. And sometimes you think, way too much food here. But that's a good thing. Because somebody gave bountifully. They brought way more than they needed. Remember the problem in communion that we celebrate today at the, Christ, the Corinthian church? Is that they all kind of just ate their own food. Which to me indicates that they made just enough for themselves. And they sat in a corner and they just ate their own food. They didn't think about maybe covering someone else who didn't have the opportunity to cook that day. Didn't have the ingredients to cook. They didn't give bountifully. They gave selfishly. They didn't give at all. And that's what giving frugally often is. It's enough to appease our conscience, but it's not the bounty of the Lord. And I'm encouraged when I see way more food than we need, and people think, well, that's waste, leftovers. Well, how you deal with leftovers could be a waste, but that's between you and the Lord. But it indicates the bounty of the Christian heart that God puts within us. That's the kind of life that we share in Christ. And so Abraham didn't haggle. For whatever reason, he gave more than he needed to, needed to and um, he finally owned a piece of Canaan, a field with its trees. Maybe logging was valuable in those days as well. They valued the trees in the field and the cave. He owned a place to bury his wife. Well, then it tells us at the end of the chapter, once that was, this was completed, he buried his wife. At the beginning of the chapter, it tells us that he, he came and he mourned and weeped for his wife. And separation, we know from a loved one, is a very, very difficult thing. But Abraham did so with a hope, just as Christians do today. Because death is not a finality, it is a temporary separation, is it not? And we know that because Abraham mentioned back in the previous chapter, the lamb that God would provide. And last week we looked at that, we talked about Abraham offering Isaac, and, and Isaac says, you know, where's Where's the lamb for the offering? And God provided the lamb, and, and at the last moment, God provided the ram. And having a discussion with someone last week, we discussed whether the ram was a sheep or a goat, and it could be either, more likely a sheep. And likely, when Abraham declared God provided a lamb, it was pointing forward to that lamb and beyond to the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, because that's where our hope is today. And though there was sorrow, Great sorrow at the loss of his wife. Abraham buried her with that sure hope. In fact, some commentators point out the fact that Abraham's desire to have a respectful burial was a respect for the expected future resurrection of the body. Because Christians live with that hope and that certainty. Not only that will be with the Lord, but someday Jesus will return and, and raise, raise our bodies to, the glor to a glorified state. If you go back to the book of Hebrews, just jump to chapter 11 again, and just point out those verses we, we looked at that mention this. Hebrews 11, we mentioned verse 10, he was looking for the city whose building builders and makers was, was God. In verse 13, it tells us that he was assured of the promises. He saw them afar off. And verse 16 tells us that they desired a, a heavenly country, a better country that God had prepared for them. 
And that was their expectation. God was going to keep his promise. He had a glorious eternal future for them. And Abraham recognized that that hope lied in the lamb. Now we know in the Old Testament, sacrificial lambs pointed forward to the final lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. God introduced this concept of substitution, the innocent dying for the guilty. Right from the very beginning, didn't he? With Adam and Eve, God clothed them with animal skins, which I assume means they had to die. He introduced that, that, that concept. We see Noah sacrificing. We see Abraham repeatedly building altars to the Lord. And then we come to Moses where we find the law given and the sacrificial system introduced of offering sacrifices to cover sins. And if you turn back to chapter 9 of Hebrews, we find here a discussion in regards to the Lamb and their understanding versus what we look at as we look back to Christ today. Pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 9 where it says, now, when these things had been thus prepared, he's referenced to the, the earthly temple in the first few verses, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience. Covered only with, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshy ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. And the point he begins to make in chapter 9 in regards to the temple, he's talking to a Hebrew people, the people of Abraham, to whom the Mosaic law was given and all those temple sacrifices were offered up to even to the day of Christ. He mentions the fact that those offerings can never get the job done. Verse 9, he says, they, they cannot make him who performed the service perfect regards the conscience. In other words, he can never cleanse the conscience of the guilt of sin. You see, those Old Testament sacrifices were called atoning sacrifices. And the word atonement means a covering. It was a temporary thing. It, and it pointed forward to the Lamb of God. And that's why it said in verse 8, it says, the way into the holiest of all, that is, the presence of God, was not yet made known. So back when the Mosaic law was going on, they offered those sacrifices. It was, it says here, symbolic. It was symbolic in verse 9 for, the, for that present time. It was symbolic because it pictured a greater and more perfect sacrifice in the person of Christ. And that's why verse 11 starts out with this wonderful word in the Scripture, the three-letter word, but... We see it throughout Scripture, God's intervening in human history. But Christ came. He is the fulfillment of the picture. He is the fulfillment of the type. He came as a high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, temple, that is. That was his body. Verse 9, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption with his own blood. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's table today. That's what Abraham counted on today, the forgiveness that God offers through the blood of the sacrifice, which all pointed forward to this final sacrifice. It's with his own blood, verse 12 says, he obtained eternal redemption. 
Verse 13 going on says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkle the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the, of the flesh, that was temporary and external, how much more? And that's the idea in these chapters. How much more complete is the work of Christ? How much better is the blood of Christ? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, he was perfect and blameless, he didn't have any sins of his own to pay for, but he cleansed your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. And that's what Jesus Christ offers to us. Those Old Testament sacrifices, those lambs could do nothing more than cover the guilt of sin. And when we come to Christ, our consciences are cleansed. Our guilt is forgiven. God says he forgets our iniquities. He puts our sins behind his back. He buries them in the depths of, of the sea. And that's why we sing with the kids at Bible school. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. If you were in Old Testament times that he's writing about, you would be singing covered, 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 covered. Yes, my sins are covered temporarily. Now they're gone because Jesus paid for our sins, past, present, and future with his own blood on the cross. And that's why verse 15 says, for this reason, he's a mediator of this new covenant, this New Testament time, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And so it's through his death we are redeemed, we are purchased, and we receive eternal inheritance. And that's why verse 22, jumping ahead, says, at the end of verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. See, that was the concept that they were being taught in the Old Testament, right from Adam and Eve. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Noah, Abraham, the Mosaic Law, fulfilled in the person of Christ. And that's why the key word in this chapter becomes the word done, or once for all. Verse 25 here, chapter 9 says, Not that he should offer himself often, as a high priest enters the most holy place every year without the blood of another, for then he would have, then would have had to suffer often. He would then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once, it says. Verse 28 says once, once again. It was a once and for all. You see, the Old Testament people were used to coming year after year. And the picture you get here in chapter 9 and chapter 10, it was wearying. Day after day, year after year, they had to offer sacrifices for sins. And they were reminded over and over again of their sins. But Jesus offered himself once and for all. Because he was the perfect lamb. He was the spotless lamb. He offered himself once and for all and forever. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come. And they're not the very image of these things. In other words, they're a shadow. We'd call it a, maybe a photograph today, a picture. And if you got the reality, you don't need the picture anymore. And when... Those whose spouses go off to war, when they come walking in the door, they don't run over and hug the picture. So they have the reality they can, they can wrap themselves up in. And that's, what it's, that's the point of this chapter. And these, verse, middle of verse 10 says, These things can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make those who approach perfect. The blood and bowls of goats could not do it. For then they would cease to have been offered. They would have got the job done, but they never did. And the, and the worshipers would no longer be conscious of sins. In verse 3, those sacrifices is a reminder of sins every year where it is not possible the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. 
The next verses tell us the necessity of the offering of Jesus Christ. See, that's why, folks, when God offers salvation, he offers it to us freely because there's only one thing that could take care of the sin problem. The problem of sin before man, the need of forgiveness, the need of the cleansing of the conscience and of the heart and life, the need of righteousness fitting us for heaven. You see, that's what those animal skins back with Adam and Eve picture. Being clothed with the righteousness of another. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God has made, he has made him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, he was perfect, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so we need cleansing, and we need forgiveness, and we need clothing, the righteousness of Christ to fit us for heaven. And that all accomplishes because it's been done once and for all and forever. You see, verse 5 goes on to tell us concerning the sacrifice of Christ, and it leads us to verse 10, which says, For by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In verse 14, we are to, or verse 12, it says, By this man he is, we, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever those that are sanctif sacrificed, sancti being sanctified, excuse me. Verse 18, now where, now where the, there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Once and done. I have a little track card here I put somewhere. I just came across this week when preparing for this message sent to me. I thought about getting. Just crazy. It says, this says, religion says do. Jesus says done. You see, understanding the issue here that Abraham understood that God would provide a lamb. And that lamb was, was identified by John the Baptist as the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Your sins and mine identifies for you and I what the issue is of salvation. It's the, it's the dealing with our sins. And that's why good works. Religion says do. Do your best in order to get right with God. And yet the good works could never take away sins just like the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. And that's why God says it's by grace we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, as any man should boast. And the reason it's not by works is because there's only one thing that could satisfy the wrath of God, the justice of God, and that was death. And that death was accomplished by another for you and I. And therefore, we have no more remembrance of sins. No need for any more offerings. And this is the death we rest in today. It's the death we, death we celebrate today. And it also understands, it helps us understand when we present the good news of salvation to people what the issue is. Salvation is never about what I do for God. It's not my good works. It's not giving my life. It's not committing my, my heart. None of those things. The direction of salvation is from God to me, not from me to God. It's my embracing what God has provided for me by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. He wasn't holding us against them because they've been paid for. And it's God's work in reconciling us to himself. And this is the message we preach, and that's why the only way this can be received is by faith. It's just that simple. God says, will you trust Jesus as your sin bearer, as the lamb who took away your sin once and for all 
and forever. And that's why the book of John uses the word believe almost 100 times in regards to salvation. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One issue, sin. One provision, the cross. One response, faith. That's the message of the Bible. That's why we don't confuse it. We keep it simple. And it's that we rest in today. It's that we celebrate today. And that's why this is such a glorious celebration. Because what all those years of animal sacrifices could not get accomplished, Jesus did when God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And our consciences can be cleansed if our faith is in Christ. Our guilt is gone. No more consciousness of sins and its guilt. It's been paid for. And though we might be aware of our sin, we recognize that sin falls under the blood of the Lamb and we stand forgiven before God. And therefore we rejoice in the one who came. And here in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, a body you prepared for me. And he says, I've come to do your will, O God. And that will was to offer himself as one sacrifice for sins forever. And thus we rejoice in him. And as we turn to the Lord's table today, I trust as we partake of these elements that we'll understand the celebration. Because this celebration is for believers. The celebration is for those who have put their faith in Christ and remember, want to be reminded of and rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. And so as we turn to 1 Corinthians 11, we recognize that this celebration isn't simply a a monthly religious ritual that we go through once a month just to do our duty and pay our obligations. This This is to be a heart celebration, and that's why we follow with a fellowship dinner, because we rejoice together as a church family in the great price that was paid as God laid on him, the Lord Jesus, my sin, and your sin. And God accepted that sacrifice as once and for all, final and forever, and on that basis forgives us. And thus this is a remembrance of him. We're told here not only to remember him, but to declare his death till we we come. And therefore, when you partake of the elements, recognize that they're symbolic. And when when we drink the cup, to recognize that Jesus gave his life. His blood was spilt for our forgiveness and cleansing. He gave his life for us. I don't understand how it happened, how God laid on him the iniquity of us all, but that's what God declares, that God held our sin against Jesus on the cross. If we partake of the elements, we recognize his body was broken under the weight of that sin. And as as we partake together, may we reflect in prayer, maybe in meditation, reading some scripture on, on uplifting our Savior who gave so much for us, that in turn we might live for him. Well, we're told here to do this, to practice this Lord's ta- the Lord's table, to celebrate with a clean heart. Verse 27, or excuse me, 26 says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so we're told to, to have our, have our hearts clean, our, our sins confessed, that we might come before God in respect and, and true respect before him. And so we're going to take a moment for silent prayer to allow you to fulfill this admonition.
to examine ourselves to be sure that when we celebrate the Lord's table, we do so with hearts that are right and, and, and lives that are rejoicing in our Savior. So let's turn to silent prayer, and I'll pray, and we'll continue.